Alright, today we're uh, looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Let me just read uh, the first couple of verses, but we'll talk about then what is happening in this chapter. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And we know we're at the heart of the letter because he says we're at the heart of the letter. We're at the main point. We're summing up uh, what we're saying. And our understanding of this main point may be the determining factor, I think, in our understanding of Hebrews... But I think it's also the determining factor in our understanding of Christianity. So there's going to be two ways of reading this book, and there's going to be two ways of reading uh, Christianity itself. One way of reading Hebrews is to say that the earthly tabernacle and temple are a copy of the heavenly reality. And this is the way that some of your translations may have it. I think this is mistaken. The idea behind a copy in in this understanding is that the spiritual is the reality and what is meant by spiritual is in some way it's beyond the earth, it's removed from us. It's, you know, to say heavenly is to say the opposite of earthly. And so Christ does not so much rule in the physical universe as he does in some distant universe or in our heart or in some inaccessible realm. I think we could read the entire Bible that way. We could do Christianity that way. I think that that is, in fact, the way that many people do read it. And I think that's a serious error. Uh, That it makes our Christianity so, uh, you know, heavenly oriented that it's of no earthly good. And I'm not sure that's even Christianity. Because what Christ is doing is bringing all things under his feet. He is establishing his reign and rule. And so in the other reading, the writer is saying that the earthly tabernacle and temple are a foreshadowing of a coming reality. And in this understanding, it's not so much a vertical as it is a horizontal, meaning not so much uh, that it's, uh, you know, we're uh, talking about up and down, but it's talking about a historical consummation of the end of the ages. And that we have come to the end of the ages in terms of a Jewish understanding. Because the purposes of the first covenant are now being brought to their fulfillment in Christ. So in this understanding, uh, it's an eschatological difference. That we've now literally entered, you know, this is the idea we often confuse the end of the ages as there's just a short time left. Well, the end of the ages means this period that we are in, it is the final covenant that we have with God. Here is the fulfillment of the faith of Israel. The priest king has established his kingdom on earth. And he's already said, we are that temple. We are that priesthood. We are that kingdom. His own life has been one in which he is bringing all things into subjection both physical and spiritual principalities and powers, uh, things on heaven and things on earth. He is the Alpha and Omega, that he's establishing his reign up to and including the final enemy, which is death. 
And so verse 1 indicates Christ's rule is a present tense rule. Uh, He sat down, you know, that he's now uh, doing this. So the question, you know, where and what does he rule? He's already said this in 1.3. And so if you take 1.3 and 8.1 together, he says almost the same thing. Just a slight difference. In 1.3 he says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then listen to 8.1 again. He sat down on the right, at the right hand on the majesty, on the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so the two sentences are identical except now he's telling his listeners where it is that Jesus serves as high priest. Christ is enthroned in heaven, in God's dwelling place. And so we could get the wrong idea here. His throne is not found in a temporal limited realm, in a temporal, you know, political rule. In a, you know, we talked this morning that it's not just in one particular Levitical tribe or a family in that tribe. Um, so it is in heaven. But heaven is not a distant realm. Rather, it is a permanent realm. It's an enduring priesthood. It's a priesthood in which death has no effect. There is no change in this priesthood. Uh, And in fact, it is a realm that is closer to us than the previous because this is going to impact our heart. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah that your hearts will be changed. The law will be written on your heart. And the other thing, it's a cosmic realm. It's not limited to one tribe. It's not limited to one geographical location. It's a priesthood for all people and all places. It's cosmic. And so the true priest king is enthroned in that which is permanent, it's indestructible, it's everlasting, and it's unchanging. And that's the significance of it taking place in heaven. This is the reality, or that which is really real. Ultimate reality does not change. Ultimate reality is not limited. The writer is telling us, here is the reality. The reality is not one that is removed from us up in heaven, but it's a reality that undergirds and interpenetrates all of reality. So Christ serves as the true high priest in the holy place, which is the sanctuary or holy of holies, which is that temple or tabernacle. And here we can see the writer perhaps gesturing if the temple is still there in Jerusalem to say, well, here is the reality that that temple points toward. This is the true tabernacle set up by God. And notice it is set up not by humans. There is this magnificent building in Jerusalem, the temple, But it is a representation of an even greater reality. And not in a Greek sense in which, you know, they would talk about the forms of the reality. And that's emanating down to earth. But it is a peculiar Jewish sense. The temple was representative of the cosmos itself. If you go through the various elements in the temple, those elements then represent creation. 
all of creation. You know, Paul says creation itself is groaning in travail, awaiting the appearance of the sons of God. In Revelation, we have a picture that revel, you know, the creation itself will be the place in which the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, is established. So the Holy of Holies indicated God's rule over creation. It is the center of creation, and that's precisely what the Jews thought about the temple. Oh, here's where things are centered. But from this center, all things are going to be redeemed. And that redemption is in and through the true temple, which he says we are. That God is enthroned in heaven, and the writer is here referring to uh, Old Testament passage, uh, Zechariah 6.13, in which there's only two places in all of Scripture that talk about an enthroned priest, a reigning, you know, king-like priest. The Zechariah passage and here in, in Hebrews. And so this priest mediates this heavenly rule. The Zechariah says, It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. He will be priest and king, and this will be the establishment of a heavenly city or a kingdom of peace. And so this symbolic action is explained in Zechariah references the sprout, the branch, who will sprout up and build the house of Yahweh. And we know this is a messianic reference. Both Zechariah and, and Hebrews are, are in the context of temple building, or the, the tent pitched by the Lord. The high priest is enthroned in heaven. You know, he, picks, he said this in 4.14, the, the great high priest who ministers in heaven. In 7.26, he's exalted above the heavens. Um, so there's several elements. First of all, there's the time element. Uh, he's referred to Psalms in many places. He's done this in 1.3 and 1.6. That in these last days, and then he'll refer to today, He's saying the right that the eschatological moment, the kingdom of God, has arrived. The heavenly temple, in which the you know Christ serves as a priest, is now. Now is the day of salvation. He says. The other is a spatial. So there, and, and to even say spatial, it's I'm already wrong here. It's not exactly spatial. But it's personal. It's all-inclusive of space. It includes, you know, where is the one place that God is not? Well, God is everywhere. Uh, In Him we live and move and have our being. But we understand it's the human heart that has the capacity to in some way empty itself of God's presence. And so I'll use the, the metaphor of space, and that's kind of the picture of heaven, Yes, but in this instance, as Christ penetrates the heavens, he penetrates the human heart. God proclaims through Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. There is no place, metaphorically, that God does not reign, even in the hearts and minds of his people. 
God will no longer remember their sins and God will be merciful. And so for Hebrews, this occurs in Christ. He is this house because he is the faithful and merciful high priest. And the writer of Hebrews has already said, and we are his house in which he mediates, in which this priesthood is carried out. We have such a high priest, he says here in 8.1. And so in this sense, we could say there is an, a, a quality to this, a, a, a different covenant quality. In 8.6, he says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. I think better here that it is a ministry that is a real change. It is, he is a mediator of a promise, a covenant relationship that really brings reconciliation. So death is, you know, the, the key thing here is no longer determinative. He says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. What does Christ offer? We've talked about this. Himself, right? I mean, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Uh, in other words, the offering is all that Christ is. And Christ as high priest is all that he is. He mediates life to us. He mediates resurrection life to us. So let's not isolate any one aspect of it and say, well, it's the death of Christ or it's one part of it. Uh, he says, today we have access to God because he's mediating. And this can be repeated, you know, whenever it's said. Uh, it's like Melchizedek's priesthood. And this is the point. It takes place in this heavenly realm. So the powers and hierarchies of human religion and human learning are no longer determinative. Because he says, they will teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. For all will know me from the least to the greatest. How is he mediating? Is he mediating through a pope, a priest, a king, a preacher? No, he's mediating to each of us. That each of us has access, equal access to the throne of grace. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And he said the new covenant that we have, he has made, when he says new, he says in verse 8 to 13, he has made the first obsolete. God's dealing with us in a new way. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Can you, can you kind of picture this? If we're approaching 70 AD, maybe the reality is this thing's going to disappear. It's already disappearing. Its significance is already displaced by Christ. The preparation for this disappearance has been made through the church. So he may be symbolically gesturing toward the temple and saying of the body of Christ, this is the true tent. Here is the true, you know, tabernacle. Here is the true temple. Not a human construction. The point of this service is not so much its location, but the universal reality 
it entails. God has now taken up residence with his people. So it's not that the heavenly sanctuary is a structure. I think we always misunderstand this. You know, when Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, I think we picture him up there with hammer and nails, you know, kind of putting together a nice little room for us. But of course, that's the wrong image, that the church is the thing that Christ is preparing. It's human hearts that he's preparing. Uh, The many-roomed mansion is this place in which all peoples will be welcome, his body. So the temple that God was expected to build in the last days and is now in place is, you know, in and through the exaltation of Christ. Maybe a parallel understanding would be John 1.14. The word became flesh and tabernacles with us. It's the same word. He's cast his tent among us. That, you know, tabernacle is one that is completed in and through Christ. And I think that's the idea. I go and prepare a place. Well, we are that preparation. We are the means of that uh, mini-room mansion being built. So the writer says this is genuine. It's authentic. It's the real tent. And it's pitched by the Lord. So it's not eternal, you know, in the sense that it's unmade. When we're talking about this heavenly dwelling, it's made, right? But who makes it? God makes it. So the idea here, we have to understand, oh, it is a a, a tent that's created, that's constructed, but by God, not by human hands. The point being that it is not simply uncreated or heavenly presence. You know, when Christ goes into this tabernacle to mediate it's eternal we could say in the sense that it's a genuine authentic or true dwelling but nonetheless it's created by God and so uh, and you know what fits this well the cosmic creation in which we are part of the means of redemption um Human sanctuaries are in some way inauthentic. Not in a pejorative sense, but in the, in 8.5, the temple is a symbolic foreshadowing of the heavenly things. The tabernacle where God camped and his people in the wilderness, you know, in numbers, was the, the figurative temple. And the Jerusalem temple is a figurative temple. And both of these are prefiguring the real or authentic dwelling, the eschaton, the church, the body of Christ, that we now enjoy. So how we read this verse determines in part, I think, how we understand the reality that is described here in Hebrews in the New Testament. So I think there's a reference throughout to numbers that God and his people go camping together. In the wilderness, in this former tent. But in Hebrews, God and his people now dwell together in the true tent, God's eschatological dwelling place. And so there is a continuity with the history of Israel. And we we don't want to set that continuity aside because what we have in it is the earthly reality and the heavenly reality brought together. In other words, if we get rid of... Uh, the Israel, you know, the the dwelling of God with Israel. The danger is that we'll just think of this as an otherworldly realm. 
8.5 seems to be referring to, especially the first part of this verse, many think or some think this is a direct reference to the temple in Jerusalem, uh, that it says the symbolic foreshadowing of the heavenly things is seen in this temple. And it's not that the temple is corrupt. And, you know, this is my understanding of when Jesus is cleansing the temple. It's not that Jesus wants to clean up Herod's temple. But that is one of the signs in John that the true temple has come. Destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Did he mean that, you know, brick and mortar construction? No, he meant the temple of his body. So the temple anticipates that eschatological dwelling of God with his people. And that reality has come then with the exaltation of Christ seated at the right hand of God. The place in which God is encountered. So that's 5a and then 5b refers to the tabernacle. It may be that the writer is referencing all those sanctuaries built by man are a foreshadowing of the true sanctuary, the true dwelling built by God. And so verse 5 could be translated as a symbolic foreshadowing of the heavenly things. Um, The word here, we have the word paradigm or upadigmatic. And the sign, you know, how do we translate this? It's a sign, a token, indication, an illustration, a pattern. Uh, an example, a specimen. I'm saying everything but the one word. Notice what I didn't say. I did not say copy. Because I think copy gets the idea, oh, there's two of these things. But no, in this instance, there's one, the shadow, the illustration, the paradigm in which the true is coming about. So, uh, the idea of copy, you know, I, I, I think is the, the word is uh, the idea of an example that is to be followed. It's a shadow in Hebrews 10.1 of the good things to come. And then he contrasts it, not the very form of the thing. So there's the shadow. Actually, he's using the Platonic words here, shadow and form. But he's using them in a very unplatonic way. Because in this instance, uh, it's not that the shadows are a continual emanation, but now we've entered into the form, the reality. In Colossians, Paul says another word using this idea of, you know, upot paradigma. Uh, He says, therefore, no one is to act or judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow, same word, of what is to come, and then listen to the way that Paul contrasts it, but the substance belongs to Christ. We've already done this in Hebrews, or or we will do it, the idea, you know, what is faith? Faith is the substance. It's the reality. It's the real stuff. Sometimes I think we get exactly the wrong idea about faith is, oh, you know, this was uh, Tom Sawyer said, you know, what is faith? Well, that's when you believe something you know ain't true. Well, no, in this instance, the reality is, is accessible in and through faith.
The substance belongs to Christ. And so there is a world to come and a heavenly country, a city to come and a heavenly Jerusalem, good things to come, heavenly things. But he says, you've tasted this heavenly gift. You've tasted the powers of this world to come because it's come and it's coming and it will come. So it's not that the heavenly realm is unreachable or untastable. We've tasted it. Not that we've experienced it in its totality, but we have experienced, as Paul will describe it, as the writer of Hebrews describes it, we've already begun to live out a kind of resurrection life. And so the heavenly things are contrasted with the earthly things that anticipate them. These are the eschatological realities that have come with the exaltation of Jesus seated at the right hand of God, God's dwelling with his people in the final age. So it's not location that has changed, it's it's the nature of the covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a superior covenant based on these superior promises in which there is a real world forgiveness, an undoing, a cleansing, a expiation of sins I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts a real world change up this isn't Lutheran imputed righteousness this is biblical transformation God will no longer remember their sins and God will be merciful and so for Hebrews this occurs in Christ he's the house Because he is the faithful and merciful high priest. And we are enabled to be faithful. Not just to have faith as something in our heads. But a life, an ethnic way of living. A way of walking that is faithful. We are his house. If we are faithful. And so in this concluding passage in this section he draws On Psalms 40, he says that the body God prepares is Christ's body. And this is what sanctifies. He's going to reference this in chapter 10, verse 5 and 10. So that earthly temple was a figure of the heavenly, God's own dwelling place. And now we see we've come to the main point. Don't miss the main point. Only Christ's work allows him and us to enter into the true place where God is thrown. It's not simply a figure or symbol. Here is the substance or the reality.